This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Frank Farage. Essays in Radical Empiricism by William James. Chapter 5 the place of affectional facts in a world of pure experience. Common sense and popular philosophy are as dualistic as it is possible to be. Thoughts, we all naturally think, are made of one kind of substance, and things of another. Consciousness, flowing inside of us in the forms of conception or judgment, or concentrating itself in the shape of passion or emotion, can be directly felt as the spiritual activity which it is, and known in contrast with the space-filling objective content which it envelops and accompanies. In opposition to this dualistic philosophy, I tried in the first essay to show that thoughts and things are absolutely homogeneous as to their material and that their opposition is only one of relation and of function. There is no thought-stuff different from thing-stuff, I said, but the same identical piece of pure experience, which was the name I gave to the materia prima of everything, can stand alternately for a fact of consciousness or for a physical reality, according as it is taken in one context or in another. For the right understanding of what follows, I shall have to presuppose that the reader will have read that essay. The commonest objection which the doctrine there laid down runs up against is drawn from the existence of our affections. In our pleasures and pains, our loves and fears and angers, in the beauty, comicality, importance, or preciousness of certain objects and situations, we have, I am told by many critics, a great realm of experience intuitively recognized as spiritual, made and felt to be made of consciousness exclusively, and different in nature from the space-filling kind of being which is enjoyed by physical objects. In section 7 of the first essay, I treated of this class of experiences very inadequately, because I had to be so brief. I now return to the subject because I believe that, so far from invalidating my general thesis, these phenomena, when properly analyzed, afford it powerful support. The central point of the pure experience theory is that outer and inner are names for two groups into which we sort experiences, according to the way in which they act upon their neighbors. Any one content, such as hard, let us say, can be assigned to either group. In the outer group, it is strong, it acts energetically and aggressively. Here, whatever is hard interferes with the space its neighbors occupy. It dents them, is impenetrable by them. And we call the hardness, then, a physical hardness. In the mind, on the contrary, the hard thing is nowhere in particular. It dents nothing. It suffuses through its mental neighbors, as it were, and interpenetrates them. Taken in this group, we call both it and them 
ideas or sensations. And the basis of the two groups respectively is the different type of interrelation. The mutual impenetrability on the one hand and the lack of physical interference and interaction on the other. That what in itself is one and the same entity should be able to function thus differently in different contexts is a natural consequence of the extremely complex reticulations in which our experiences come. To her offspring, a tigress is tender, but cruel to every other living thing. Both cruel and tender, therefore, at once. A mass in movement resists every force that operates contrarywise to its own direction, but to forces that pursue the same direction, or come in at right angles, it is absolutely inert. It is thus both energetic and inert. And the same is true, if you vary the associates properly, of every other piece of experience. It is only toward certain specific groups of associates that the physical energies, as we call them, of a content are put forth. In another group it may be quite inert. It is possible to imagine a universe of experiences in which the only alternative between neighbors would be either physical interaction or complete inertness. In such a world, the mental or the physical status of any piece of experience would be unequivocal. When active, it would figure in the physical, and when inactive, in the mental group. But the universe we live in is more chaotic than this and there is room in it for the hybrid or ambiguous group of our affectional experiences, of our emotions and appreciative perceptions. In the paragraphs that follow, I shall try to show 1. That the popular notion that these experiences are intuitively given as purely inner facts is hasty and erroneous. And 2. That their ambiguity illustrates beautifully my central thesis, that subjectivity and objectivity are affairs not of what an experience is aboriginally made of, but of its classification. Classifications depend on our temporary purposes. For certain purposes, it is convenient to take things in one set of relations, for other purposes in another set. In the two cases, their contexts are apt to be different, in the case of our affectional experiences, we have no permanent and steadfast purpose that obliges us to be consistent. So we find it easy to let them float ambiguously, sometimes classing them with our feelings, sometimes with more physical realities, according to caprice or to the convenience of the moment. Thus would these experiences, so far from being an obstacle to the pure experience philosophy, serve as an excellent corroboration of its truth. First of all, then, it is a mistake to say, with the objectors whom I began by citing, that anger, love, and fear are affections purely of the mind. That, to a great extent any rate, they are simultaneously affections of the body is proved by the whole literature of the James Langer theory of emotion. All our pains, moreover, are local, and we are always free to speak of them in objective as well as in subjective terms. We can say that we are aware of a painful place, filling a certain bigness in our organism, 
or we can say that we are inwardly in a state of pain. All our adjectives of worth are similarly ambiguous. I instanced some of the ambiguities in the first essay. Is the preciousness of a diamond a quality of the gem? Or is it a feeling in our mind? Practically, we treat it as both or as either, according to the temporary direction of our thought. Beauty, says Professor Santayana, is pleasure objectified. And in sections 10 and 11 of his work, The Sense of Beauty, he treats in a masterly way of this equivocal realm. The various pleasures we receive from an object may count as feelings when we take them singly, but when they combine in a total richness, we call the result the beauty of the object and treat it as an outer attribute which our mind perceives. We discover beauty just as we discover the physical properties of things. Training is needed to make us expert in either line. Single sensations also may be ambiguous. Shall we say, an agreeable degree of heat, or an agreeable feeling occasioned by the degree of heat? Either will do, and language would lose most of its aesthetic and rhetorical value were we forbidden to project words primarily connoting our affections upon the objects by which the affections are aroused. The man is really hateful. The action really mean. The situation really tragic. All in themselves and quite apart from our opinion. We even go so far as to talk of a weary road, a giddy height, a jocund morning, or a sullen sky. And the term indefinite, while usually applied only to our apprehensions, functions as a fundamental physical qualification of things in Spencer's Law of Evolution, and doubtless passes with most readers for all right. Psychologists, studying our perceptions of movement, have unearthed experiences in which movement is felt in general, but not ascribed correctly to the body that really moves. Thus, in optical vertigo, caused by unconscious movements of our eyes, both we and the external universe appear to be in a whirl. When clouds float by the moon, it is as if both clouds and moon, and we ourselves, shared in the motion. In the extraordinary case of amnesia of the Reverend Mr. Hanna, published by Sidis and Goodhart in their important work on multiple personality, we read that when the patient first recovered consciousness and, quote, noticed an attendant walk across the room, he identified the movement with that of his own. He did not yet discriminate between his own movements and those outside himself, end quote. Such experiences point to a primitive stage of perception, in which discriminations afterwards needful have not yet been made. A piece of experience of a determinate sort is there, but there at first as a pure fact. Motion originally simply is. Only later is it confined to this thing or to that. Something like this is true of every experience, however complex, at the moment of its actual presence. Let the reader arrest himself in the act of reading this article now. Now this is a pure experience, a phenomenon, or datum, 
a mere that, or content of fact. Reading simply is, is there, and whether there for someone's consciousness or therefore physical nature, is a question not yet put. At the moment, it is there for neither. Later, we shall probably judge it to have been there for both. With the affectional experiences which we are considering, the relatively pure condition lasts. In practical life, no urgent need has yet arisen for deciding whether to treat them as rigorously mental or as rigorously physical facts. So they remain equivocal. And as the world goes, their equivocality is one of their great conveniences. The shifting place of secondary qualities in the history of philosophy is another excellent proof of the fact that inner and outer are not coefficients with which experiences come to us aboriginally stamped, but are rather results of a later classification performed by us for particular needs. The common-sense stage of thought is a perfectly definite, practical halting place, the place where we ourselves can proceed to act unhesitatingly. On this stage of thought, things act on each other as well as on us by means of their secondary qualities. Sound, as such, goes through the air and can be intercepted. The heat of fire passes over, as such, into the water which it sets a-boiling. It is the very light of the arc lamp which displaces the darkness of the midnight street, etc. By engendering and translocating just these qualities, actively efficacious as they seem to be, we ourselves succeed in altering nature so as to suit us. And until more purely intellectual, as distinguished from practical, needs had arisen, no one ever thought of calling these qualities subjective. When, however, Galileo, Descartes, and others found it best for philosophic purposes to class sound, heat, and light, along with pain and pleasure as purely mental phenomena, they could do so with impunity. Even the primary qualities are undergoing the same fate. Hardness and softness are effects on us of atomic interactions, and the atoms themselves are neither hard nor soft, nor solid nor liquid. Size and shape are deemed subjective by Kantians. Time itself is subjective according to many philosophers. And even the activity and causal efficacy which lingered in physics long after secondary qualities were banished are now treated as illusory projections outwards of phenomena of our own consciousness. There are no activities or effects in nature for the most intellectual contemporary school of physical speculation. Nature exhibits only changes, which habitually coincide with one another, so that their habits are describable in simple laws. There is no original spirituality or materiality of being intuitively discerned, then, but only a translocation of experiences from one world to another, a grouping of them with one set or another of associates for definitely practical or intellectual ends. I will say nothing here of the persistent ambiguity of relations. They are undeniable parts of pure experience, yet while common sense and what I call radical empiricism stand for their being objective, 
both rationalism and the usual empiricism claim that they are exclusively the work of the mind, the finite mind or the absolute mind, as the case may be. Turn now to those affective phenomena which more directly concern us. We soon learn to separate the ways in which things appeal to our interests and emotions from the ways in which they act upon one another. It does not work to assume that physical objects are going to act outwardly by their sympathetic or antipathetic qualities. The beauty of a thing or its value is no force that can be plotted in a polygon of compositions, nor does its use or significance affect in the minutest degree its vicissitudes or destiny at the hands of physical nature. Chemical affinities are a purely verbal metaphor, and, as I just said, even such things as forces, tensions, and activities can at a pinch be regarded as anthropomorphic projections. So far, then, as the physical world means the collection of contents that determine in each other certain regular changes, the whole collection of our appreciative attributes has to be treated as falling outside of it. If we mean by physical nature whatever lies beyond the surface of our bodies, these attributes are inert throughout the whole extent of physical nature. Why, then, do men leave them as ambiguous as they do, and not class them decisively as purely spiritual? The reason would seem to be that, although they are inert as regards the rest of physical nature, they are not inert as regards that part of physical nature which our own skin covers. It is those very appreciative attributes of things, their dangerousness, beauty, rarity, utility, etc., that primarily appeal to our attention. In our commerce with nature, these attributes are what give emphasis to objects, and for an object to be emphatic, whatever spiritual fact it may mean, means also that it produces immediate bodily effects upon us, alterations of tone and tension, of heartbeat and breathing, of vascular and visceral action. The interesting aspects of things are thus not wholly inert physically, though they be active only in these small corners of physical nature which our bodies occupy. That, however, is enough to save them from being classed as absolutely non-objective. The attempt, if any one should make it, to sort experiences into two absolutely discrete groups, with nothing but inertness in one of them and nothing but activities in the other, would thus receive one check. It would receive another as soon as we examined the more distinctively mental group. For though in that group it be true that things do not act on one another by their physical properties, do not dent each other or set fire to each other, they yet act on each other in the most energetic way by those very characters which are so inert extracorporally. It is by the interest and importance that experiences have for us, by the emotions they excite and the purposes they subserve, by their affective values in short, that their consecution in our several conscious streams as thoughts of ours is mainly ruled. Desire introduces them, Interest holds them. Fitness fixes their order and connection. I need only refer, for this aspect of our mental life, to Wundt's article, Über psychische Kasualität, 
which begins volume 10 of his Philosophische Studien. It thus appears that the ambiguous or amphibious status which we find our epithets of value occupying is the most natural thing in the world. It would, however, be an unnatural status if the popular opinion which I cited at the outset were correct. If physical and mental meant two different kinds of intrinsic nature, immediately, intuitively, and infallibly discernible, and each fixed forever in whatever bit of experience it qualified, one does not see how there could ever have arisen any room for doubt or ambiguity. But if, on the contrary, these words are words of sorting, ambiguity is natural. For then, as soon as the relations of a thing are sufficiently various, it can be sorted variously. Take a mass of carrion, for example, and the disgustingness for which it is part of the experience. The sun caresses it, and the zephyr woos it as if it were a bed of roses. So the disgustingness fails to operate within the realm of suns and breezes. It does not function as a physical quality. But the carrion turns our stomach by what seems a direct operation. It does function physically, therefore, in that limited part of physics. We can treat it as physical or as non-physical according as we take it in the narrower or in the wider context, and conversely, of course, we must treat it as non-mental or as mental. Our body itself is the palmary instance of the ambiguous. Sometimes I treat my body purely as a part of outer nature. Sometimes, again, I think of it as mine. I sort it with the me. And then certain local changes and determinations in it pass for spiritual happenings. Its breathing is my thinking. Its sensorial adjustments are my attention. Its kinesthetic alterations are my works. Its visceral perturbations are my emotions. The obstinate controversies that have arisen over such statements as these, which sound so paradoxical, and which can yet be made so seriously, prove how hard it is to decide by bare introspection what it is in experiences that shall make them either spiritual or material. It surely can be nothing intrinsic in the individual experience. It is their way of behaving towards each other, their system of relations, their function, and all these things vary with the context in which we find it opportune to consider them. I think I may conclude then, and I hope that my readers are now ready to conclude with me, that the pretended spirituality of our emotions and of our attributes of value, so far from proving an objection to the philosophy of pure experience, does, when rightly discussed and accounted for, serve as one of its best corroborations. End of chapter 5 Essays in Radical Empiricism by William James